Welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Relic is one of the newest movies from IFC Midnight and the feature debut of Australian filmmaker Natalie Erica James. Relic tells the heartbreaking story of a family of women dealing with the mental decline of their matriarchal grandmother due to what seems to be Alzheimer's, but upon closer inspection appears to be something malevolent and evil. Relic was very striking and a really multifaceted, multi-layered movie, and I highly recommend it. It blends very deep emotions with atmosphere and eeriness and nuance, all while confronting serious themes of familial trauma and tragedy. One of the reasons Relic is so emotionally poignant is because it was based on Natalie's own family struggles with the gradual decline of her own grandmother due to Alzheimer's. You can tell by watching it that Relic is a deeply personal story, and it takes a certain amount of bravery to explore that as deeply as Natalie did. Ultimately, Relic hits all of the right emotional notes and delivers the scares in equal measure, and overall was one of the most exciting horror movies of this year. Natalie really knocked my socks off with Relic, and I truly Truthfully, can't wait to see what she does next. Now, for your listening pleasure, here is Natalie Erica James, director of Relic. Huge congratulations on the Relic. Thank or, you. I'm sorry, Relic. It's not the Relic. The it's Relic not, yeah, was yeah. that monster movie back in the 90s. Bedding. Right, right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, how can you can you walk us through how the movie got made? I mean, what how did you get attached to this movie? How what was the origin story behind the film itself? That, particularly since this is this is your directorial debut, right? It is, yeah, my first feature. Um, I started writing it back in, I think, end of 2014. So it was an original idea. Um, I have a co-writer on it as well, Christian White, and he and I um, started developing it with, like, a Melbourne production company called Carver Films, who I'd known for some time. Um, And then we actually had our first draft down when we thought we'd kind of make a proof of concept for it. And that was a short film called Creswick, which was a very different story, but had the same tone, theme and setting. And yeah, I just, I had seen uh, that uh, strategy of making a proof of concept work so well for a bunch of other filmmakers. So, you know, it was quite strategic in that way. Um, and the film did a few kind of genre festivals, uh, and I, you know, made a point to travel over with them. And at one particular festival, I think it was Fantasia, we got a write up in IndieWire, which was just like a, you know, top five films to see at Fantasia, something like that. Um, but obviously, people are reading that because I was suddenly flooded with all these, um, you know, like people getting in touch, um, mostly representation, lots of managers, that kind of thing. Um, And I think probably because it's horror as well, it was people were looking specifically for female-driven horror or genre. Um, So I think timing was quite good with that. And off the back of that, I ended up signing with my US reps, my agents, Um, and then they kind of came on board to help uh, find producing partners uh, for the project. And at this point, we were already kind of getting development funding through our our government funding bodies in Australia. So mm-hmm. Screen Australia, Film Victoria. Yeah, um, you guys so have a lot already, of good film initiatives in Australia. It is good. Yeah. I mean, there's not, you know, there's only a, a, a small pool, I guess. And it just means that they effectively act as a, you know, it's a cultural institution, but also kind of a studio, but then they're the only studio. So if you can get on that train of funding, that's amazing. But um, 
uh, yeah, the industry is certainly smaller over here. Uh, so anyway, we the development was kind of chugging along, and then um, we, through my U.S. kind of reps, we were able to do a bunch of meetings um, to pair up with potential producing partners and then eventually financiers as well. So that was how Nine Stories came on board, which is uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Reva Marcus' company, and then eventually Agbo Films, which is the Russo Brothers' company. They came on board to co-finance with Australia. Such heavy-hitting producers. I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, the whole time, I have this approach to filmmaking that's a bit like, you know, prepare uh, for the worst but hope for the best, right? So the whole time you're thinking, oh, that's, that's crazy. That's going to fall through. Um, so I think approaching it with like a degree of skepticism is a little bit healthy. Right. <laughs> um, and particularly with casting as well, you know, cause so many of those things fall over um, and it's all in timing and people's schedules and all that kind of thing. So, um, you know, a lot of like, I, it, it sounds really quick when I say it in, in a paragraph like that, but from the point of conception, it was about, maybe like four years until we, we shot it, we started shooting it. Mm-hmm. So. Gotcha. Well, I mean, that being said, the whole idea of, of hoping for the best, in your case, that clearly worked out. What do you think these <laughs> producers saw in the short that made them so interested and made them want to jump on board? Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe, um, I mean, this is just me guessing, but maybe there was like an emotional kind of component to it that, they that resonated with them because both of those companies are not traditional uh, oh sorry not traditional but they they don't usually make horror films they're mm-hmm. not genre production companies so in some ways i think probably the you know the thematic drive and the emotional components of the short and and the feature because we had the script at that point when they were looking at the short um uh, were yeah speaking to things that they they understood and that they were interested in probably yeah yeah there's a book I don't know if you've read it it's called From Real to Deal by Dov Siemens uh, he does this oh, this haven't. like three day class in LA and uh, a lot of people have sworn by him including Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez they say he's the real deal yeah. he really helped them with their career there's a part in his book where he says nobody cares about your short don't make a short but I've heard from multiple directors in cases where they make a short they take it on the festival circuit and then they get repped and then they go make a feature so clearly shorts really do matter i mean it sounds like they can be such a a door opener for a lot of directors a hundred percent i think um you know it's it's a hard enough industry if you're a director you have to kind of show what you can create and before people will give you a chance right like you almost have to believe in yourself first for to get people to believe in you um i think it's really important actually uh i will say also that like to make sure that the short is representative of the feature Mm -hmm. and does that effectively whether it's in the same uh, tone or style or whatever it is because um, I have done the opposite where I've made a short first and kind of expanded it into a feature and now that the feature version is kind of more developed it's not necessarily indicative of what's seen in the short mm-hmm. so I think there's a danger in that too so if you start from a feature concept and then you kind of distill it down into something smaller I think that is a much more effective way to um yeah, get your feature made because you see so many short films, you know, horror shorts that are kind of just like 
centered on one visual gag or motif or just one scare. They're like punchline films, but nothing wrong with that, of course. But it's like, then you have to do all the work of finding what the feature is about. Whereas if you do that work first, it's like you're making a film that's meaningful because that was your intention from the get-go. It's not just trying to expand this like scare that was effective on screen Mm. for three minutes. For me, it's always driven by... Imagery, sure, but also thematic drive and what it, what is it the film saying, essentially? What is it about? Yeah. Right, right. Well, I feel like there's a real fine art to the slow burn. And I think when it's done right, right and in your case, it was done so, so exquisitely. I'm wondering how you approached the slow burn. Were there specific movies that you observed? Was there any sort of, I don't know, tension-based beat sheet you know, that you crafted? <laughs> To observe, yeah, like, yeah. the ratcheting up of tension throughout the course of the movie. I mean, how scientific did you get about approaching the uh, slow balance, burn? For sure. Yeah, it's a really tricky balance, especially in something like this, where there's a suspension of whether it's something supernatural or something in real life. It kind of has a gothic horror um, uh, kind of framework or um, uh, approach to it in some way. Um, I, I'm sure we did... I don't know if we physically wrote graphs or anything, but definitely we were conscious of where the um, the highs and lows were coming in in terms of tension. I would point to a film like Kill List by okay. Ben Wheatley. Yep, that was which, cool. Right, which has this like really sinister tension, even though the you know the film the films are completely different, um, and then it just kind of ramps up into this uh, haywire um, ending and. So I would often, it is useful to have comps like that to know um, in yourself that you can do it, but also to convince other people and go, hey, these guys have done it before, so it will be fine. Because, yeah, it is it's it is a slow burn, and it's that inherently means it's not going to be for every horror fan. Right. Um, because I think these days the expectation so much is to, you know, have that scare every 10 minutes or every 15 pages. I feel like we're getting immune to jump scares. I feel like everybody knows when they're coming, they can sense the setup and everybody hates that false jump scare where it's the cat that jumps on the piano or whatever. I feel like we're just completely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's it's in making a film and when an audience watches it, you have this, you're creating trust right between a filmmaker and an audience. And I think, every jump scare you have kind of, uh, especially fake out jump scares <laughs> kind of erodes that trust. So mm-hmm. it's not my personal approach, but, um, obviously they have, um, their uses as well. Today's episode of the Nick Taylor horror show is brought to you by diabolic DVD for almost 20 years. Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror cult and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including arrow synapse, vinegar syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, blue underground 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-D-V-D.com. 
So this being your feature directorial debut and with very serious producers behind you, how did you prepare for directing? I mean, beyond, you know, the the, the obligatory kind of pre-production phases and storyboarding and working with your actors and like that, how did you either, yeah. any special either rituals or books you read or any, <laughs> anything in particular that you did to just to prepare for this moment? Oh, rituals. Oh, that is a really good question. Um Nothing I can really think of. I mean, I think for me what was really helpful was having uh, a lot of, or at least part of the crew that I'd used on short films um, come up with me to do the feature. And so in a lot of ways it was really daunting, this idea of, you know, cast with all this profile and um, the big name producers attached. Yeah, so it was really nice having those collaborators um, on board because to a certain degree there is a lot of pressure but you can put that to the side when, you know, you have your team and it just feels like normal. Judith Weston is a great resource um, for directing, act- her, her book, Directing Actors, is one right. that um, I've, yeah, I kind of discovered at film school and I've kind of come back to now and again. Um, so I, I definitely recommend that. Um, I think just uh, probably like meditation and journaling is another thing that I, you know, uh, use to, cause I think your mental health is so important and oh, yeah. something that's often neglected in this process. Um, walks as well. Uh, often if you run into like issues, it's, it's helpful to kind of nut it out in a walk. Um, something about like you 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 physically doing something else can help. I don't know, some, you overcome some kind of creative obstacle. I find that really useful. Yep. Steve Jobs used to do just that when he was having issues at Apple. (laughs) Something magical about a walk. Completely. Yeah. So don't underestimate how, yeah, taking care of yourself, of of yourself in little ways, I think, because there's enough on your plate. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously, the, the subject matter of the movie was deeply personal, and I know you've been interviewed at length about it and the, the overall mm. backstory behind it. But one quote in particular that I wanted to point to was from an interview you yeah. did with Bloody Disgusting, where you said, there was no separation for me between the art and life, which was powerful in some ways and painful in others. So, I mean, I'm wondering, given that this was all based on you know real real emotional experiences for you, how were there any keys for channeling that into the work because I in looking at the movie I it seems like the kind of movie where yes you can identify people's individual plights like you can tell this is a personal story to you but it does feel very universal in how other people can kind of project their own interpretations and their own emotional stories and family yeah. dramas into it it just feels like a really masterful balance that you pulled off so I'm wondering how you approached putting your own personal story into this but how, why do you think it was so universal at the same time? Yeah. I mean, I think what's uh, the personal aspect of it is um, part of it is practical like what's actually happening on screen, but it's also the emotional truth of it. Right. So for me, it was always about, you know, the plot is vastly different from what actually happens with um, in real life. It's, you know, my grandmother's decline was a, a very extended one, um, as is for a lot of people, whereas this film takes place over the course of like a week. So, you know, it's a very accelerated um, uh, story that is trying to just capture the essence of the experience, not so much, you know, right. uh, it's it's kind of day-to-day form. Um, so, 
you know, it's it's a representation of your experience in some ways. So you're drawing on the emotional truth, but there is some distance to it because, um, yeah, it's not the case. Like my grandmother wasn't violent, for example. Right. And it is. So you kind of um, ramp it up for the genre in hmm. a sense. Um, I also feel like the reason it can, you know, hopefully resonate with people beyond just people who've experienced Alzheimer's in some form is that it's it's so much about mortality and aging and that's something that everyone has to deal with um so yeah I think I think you can apply any sort of life experience um to the film because everyone has to cope with death uh in some form and their parents aging and themselves aging so I mean, it's interesting that you say that there was kind of space for you to to explore your emotions because it was not exactly what happened. If you did a drama that was just, you know, beat for beat exactly what happened, I'm sure that would be right. extremely painful. But I feel like that's kind of the beauty of horror is it allows for a symbolic exploration of, of visceral emotions in ways that are sensationalized. So I'm sure that that made it a little easier since you were playing in a kind of horror sandbox. Completely, completely. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the great thing about uh, things about horror is that it's, it is a kind of safe space to feel emotions really strongly in a way because the fears are externalized and the menace is physicalized. And so it, it almost feels warranted. Whereas, yeah, you wouldn't be running around the house screaming if it was just, you know, true yeah. life. I suppose. Um, so that's kind of wonderful. Um, you know, it's still, it's still a process. And I think particularly in the writing process, it can be, quite tricky like you're really trudging up the yeah. shit to, to write um and sometimes in post too um when you're on set there's just too much going on that you can't really you know be bogged down by stuff like that but um you know there, there's still scenes in the film there's one scene in particular where edna's kind of burying photos um that you know, I was like weeping on set. It was, uh, it was pretty wow. intense, but it wasn't, it wasn't debilitating in any way. Yeah. So. Well, was it a cathartic process in any way? I mean, was it healing to make this movie considering, you know, what, what you had gone through? Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, particularly in releasing the film, uh, at Sundance, cause my parents were able to come along with me. And so my mom saw it for wow. the first time there. I was really nervous about that. Um, but she, you know, really loved it and really connected with it. And I mean, not to sound too sentimental, but like my, my, we found out about getting into Sundance, um, almost like a week before my grandmother actually passed and we were in Japan visiting her and, you know, doing a trip over there. So the timing of it was kind of uncanny and yeah, it was, (laughs) it was a lot like, kind of this career high as well as this you know devastating low um but then for it to i don't know it was very meaningful in a no that's pretty amazing and the fact that your parents got to be there to see the premiere at sundance i mean that's yes amazing. yes that was wonderful and that they liked it i mean had they not i'm sure that that would have been difficult as well no completely because obviously so many filmmakers use um their own stories uh and make films and obviously there's a lot of fallout um with their family sometimes so i'm so grateful that they were on board well that's great that's really great 
Attention to all you New York listeners. The beloved comic book shop Forbidden Planet is in trouble in the wake of COVID-19. After months with zero revenue coming in and massive expenses going out, rent, utilities, and other bills have added up very quickly. The cost of doing business in New York City is astronomical, especially in a ground floor location off of Union Square. I grew up going to this place and could always find whatever my nerdy heart desired at Forbidden Planet. Whether it was issues of Johnny the Homicidal Maniac or a rare Todd McFarlane movie maniacs action figure, Forbidden Planet had it and gave me the opportunity to hang out with members of my own tribe. I still go to this place and still get super excited every time I walk through their doors. Their staff is unbelievably nice and knowledgeable, and I always walk out with some awesome new discovery. Seriously, this is a magical place, and it breaks my heart that they're in trouble. The owners are dedicated to ensuring that their staff has a job waiting for them when the quarantine is lifted, and because of that, they need your help and have started a GoFundMe page. Just Google Forbidden Planet GoFundMe and you'll find it. Luckily, Forbidden Planet has been able to reopen their doors, so if you're in the New York City area or planning a visit, make sure you go there. Damn the man, save the planet. Please give if you can, and if you can't, please share the campaign. So I feel like a total geek for doing this, but I feel like with movies like this one, there's um, there's clearly a lot of symbolism. Um, and whether and sometimes that symbolism is conscious. Sometimes it's very intentional. Sometimes it might not be. And sometimes people, again, project their own symbolic interpretations. So I have like a list of things that I want to see. Okay, did I, did I get cool. this right? Okay. So the labyrinth within the house when she goes in the crawl space and gets stuck, to me that seemed like the danger of getting stuck in family drama and getting too involved and being kind of seemingly well-intentioned and wanting to be helpful, but realizing that it, it with certain fam- like multi-generational family either issues or trauma, it is a bottomless, endless pit. And the deeper you go, the more lost you get. And the idea of just kind of feeling trapped by that. That's, that was my interpretation. I, I think that's solid, honestly. Like, um, for me, like, part of it as well, you could, you could also see it as em- emblematic of Edna's mind, you know, and I guess Sam and Kate being drawn into that experience as well. You know, it's filled with her memories. It's, it's kind of decaying as well. Um, and it is a terrifying place. So that paranoia is mounting. Um, but I, I think that's a completely valid kind of view of it too. Um, and the, all those things are so, yeah, like important in the film. So I think, I think that's an A plus. <laughs> cool. Hey, I'll take it. I'll take those wherever I can get them. <laughs> um, when she locks the door on her daughter and says, I can't leave her to me, that was her trying to protect her daughter again from like multi-generational trauma and saying, okay, this tra- this ends with you. And, uh, Yeah. And then when she, okay, cool. Um, and then when she kind of stripped her down to nothing, and again, for those listening, semi-spoiler alert, to me that seemed like it was symbolic of the role reversal between parents and kids when parents become a certain age and she was kind of stripped down to her barest version um, and was very childlike and very, very delicate. So I, that's, that was my interpretation, the, the role reversal between parent and child towards the end of their lives. Wow, I am on a roll, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, to speak to the ending, like, uh, I don't know how much you want to talk about spoilers, but, you know, that reveal or the the peeling away is in a lot of ways um, about acceptance as well, right? Um, And in about being there for someone 
uh, in their decline and no matter what form that they take or, you know, because people, I think what was important to us at the end is that, of course, it's the the other we call um, what in the becomes uh, her transformation. Uh, of course, there is a supernatural kind of alien otherworldliness to to that um, figure, but it's also very human as well, and it's very fragile and very vulnerable. And so, like a child, as you say, it, it does mimic how people are at the end of their lives. Um, so we were just drawing on real life, you know, the horrors of what people become when they're wasting away. Right. Um, and there's a sense of, uh, I guess, yeah, that unconditional love and acceptance and seeing someone for, you know, where they are in their lives, but also that there was something of like a, a funeral rite to it. So there's something very like intimate and um, compassionate about the act. Uh, it's like not dissimilar to washing someone's body once they've passed in preparation for the funeral, which, you know, you do in Japan. And um, I think we used to do that in the West as well, but not so much anymore. Yeah, it was a very beautiful moment in a very eerie way. Um, but yeah, it was very, very, very gentle and beautifully done and kind of like reminded me of old school Tim Burton, but a little more, a little more grounded and, and real. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh-huh. Yeah. It was, it was funny when we were writing it, we definitely got some comments from people being like, so how is this going to be emotional? Like it just sounds really <laughs> grotesque to me. Yeah. It was um, super emotional. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It was really beautiful. <laughs> well, credit to Emily Mortimer and the animatronics team for, you know, and Bella Heathcote, of course. Oh, was that an animatronic human or was that somebody in a, in practical effects? It was that like somebody no, in a head to toe prosthesis. Yeah, so 70% practical, 30% visual effects, I would say. Okay. Um, and, yeah, we sculpted a um, out from silicon, essentially. It was a prosthetic animatronic. Uh, and it was so incredible how they could control, you know, the, the tiniest muscles in the puppet's face. Yeah. Um, and it turns out, because I always thought we would have to replace the eyes, at least, because they wouldn't look realistic. But it turns out it's not the eyeball that you have to worry about. It's the muscles around the eyes that make something look real. Um, so, yeah. No, I was, I was blown away. They had, like, a breathing mechanism for the puppet as well so that it would, like, go up and down. And, um, I mean, I was so conscious of the fact that even if the rest of the film was successful, if that didn't um, pan out and if it fell flat, then, you know, essentially the film would be a bust. So, uh, yeah, very a lot of high stakes on that particular production element. Yeah. So Cronenberg was a big influence on you, and this movie had a pretty solid body horror element to it as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> how Completely. did you? Uh, could you talk about how you got into Cronenberg? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I have a lot of you know uh, references as directors, but I think I saw Videodrome. Uh, in my teens um, I grew up in the 90s so it was before my time but that was when I saw it and it just I always just loved films that kind of are a bit of a head fuck you know yeah. psychological <laughs> um, horror drama kind of that space um, and I think he just uh, with uh, that's probably my favorite of his films that I kind of went and um you know consumed a whole a lot of other things um dead ringers as well i also love that one is um, so insane but yeah kind of just unabashed 
unabashedly cerebral and weird and very visceral. Um, yeah, that's kind of the things that I love about his work. Yeah, yeah, I love the unabashedness too. Like, there's no need to explain what happens in Videodrome. You just kind of right. have to go with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I knew I, um, I Steve Johnson is a friend of mine, and he worked alongside Rick Baker into the effects on that movie. He talks about reading the script and he's like yeah. talking about reading the script. He's like, I have no idea what I am working on. Like this makes no sense. His <laughs> can becomes the gun and the gun. And then he has this, he has like an orifice in his chest. It's like he could not process it. And then he just did it. And then yeah, he saw yeah. the movie and then he's like, okay, now I get it. Now I get the brilliance of it. It's like the kind of stuff that makes no sense on the page. But then you see it and yeah. it's like, oh, my God, this is mind-blowing. I love prosthetics people because they, you know, I mean, I will, the guy I work with in Melbourne, he's, he's brilliant. And he did a phenomenal job on Relic. But I'll often just send him photos of disgusting things and <laughs> doesn't phase him whatsoever. You know, I'm like, oh, can you create this? And he's like, oh, yeah. And then he'll send me like five videos of that. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Oh, man. Yeah, they <laughs> need to have a ass. strong like, stomach. So well, Tom Savini oh, nice. was a war photographer in Vietnam. He oh, used to, really? yeah, he used wow. to take photographs of dead bodies um, and people who had been blown up by bombs and things like that. He saw all manner of horrible things. So that's why people yeah. think that he's able to do blood and gore so well. But, uh, yeah, but yeah I mean, the ser- their search history alone would be just, you know. <laughs> I bet they're on a lot of watch for lists. For anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> they're definitely on government watch lists for sure. <laughs> Completely. Yeah, I'd often, like, be writing emails to him being like, Corpse Dimensions is the subject title. <laughs> just the most <laughs> surreal moments of, like, oh, what am I doing with my life? This is amazing. <laughs> it's cool. No, it's kind of a good feeling. <laughs> so um as when it comes to writing and directing and filmmaking there's a lot of books on the topic were there any that were particularly helpful to you in terms of your either either directing or your overall directorial career was there anything that you would attribute um, your success to I've been listening um to a lot of like podcasts about screenwriting in particular because I'm in a screenwriting phase um, but books wise, yeah, I mean, I've, I've read, I've read quite like the, uh, the classics, I guess, like, you know, story, mm-hmm. Robert McKee, like save the cat. Yep. Um, I think it's always interesting to find different ways of approaching screenwriting and, and the frameworks you can use to think about screenwriting. Um, I would say that my co-writer and I do a, we don't follow one school of, yeah. you know, screenwriting thought. It's very much a mix. Um, and we also had this brilliant script editor who, um, you know, put us on to, for example, breaking the script down into like eight chapters instead of the three acts or four acts that people use. And it's just a way of, um, you know, uh, yeah, thinking about it in, in a different way. So I think it's like whatever's helpful to you. I would say one book that has been great um, is maybe like On Writing by Stephen King. That's oh, yeah. Classic. Love that book. Just just the way that he describes um, the pro, like his muse. Right. <laughs> you know, as this like guy who you have to like go down the stairs of the basement. He's got to know where to find you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I do really like that idea of, because um, I think you can assign so much uh, pressure onto yourself with, with screenwriting and it's, it's the easiest thing not to do in some ways. Um, so it's great to just know that just showing up is enough and you don't have to churn out brilliance every day. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's that thing of like, 
uh, what's that thing that um that eat pray love writer says um you know, know genius is like outside of you Oh. I can't remember. Her name. Yeah, I, she has this really interesting idea about how, like, you don't have to assign genius to yourself. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's kind of this elusive thing that you have to be present for, and you can catch sometimes, but not always. Yeah, and that's really, I don't know. It it, it means that it's um, it's just a more optimistic approach. I think. Yeah, um, to me, that was the most liber one of the most liberating things about on writing is when he talked about like, yeah, here's how I write books. So many books, two thousand words a day, and most of the time, they're it sucks. Um, and then he just reworks it and reworks it and reworks it, and his wife goes through it and she's his writing partner to a degree. Um, and he just breaks it down and he sounds like a mere mortal. Stephen King sounds yeah. like, Oh, okay. I, now I get it. But yeah. Yeah. And also the idea of the closed door. I really yes. appreciate that as well. Um, and that you actually need that time and there's, you know, your brain is very, um, easily distracted. And so you, you have to carve it out into your life that, that alone time. Um, bird by bird is another one. Yeah. I love that one. Love yeah. That one. It's very in line with on writing in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is just about the slog and just getting through it. <laughs> Even if, you know, sometimes you're writing and you're like, this is shit, this is shit. It's like tune out that, you know, yeah. the voice, the negative voice. Um, and then, uh, also, um, the artist's way is a great one too, which is, I'm a fan. I did, um, did my morning page this morning. Oh, amazing. Is it Julia Campbell? I think it's Cameron. Julia Cameron. Cameron. Okay. I think it's Cameron. Yeah. And obviously she talks about, uh, yeah, having a relationship with yourself as an artist, which sounds quite wanky, but in practice, like I understand, it's more just about cultivating curiosity right. you know, in the world. And yeah, just to, to sit and do your pages and get started and clear your brain. Yeah. Have you read The War of so Art? I haven't, no, but I've heard a lot about it's it. It's really, it's, I think it's it's up there yeah. with the, all the ones that, yeah, because I'm huge fans of, I'm a huge fan of all the ones that you mentioned, but that one is excellent. And it's really nice. tiny. You can probably do it in an afternoon, but it's the kind of thing where you read one or two pages and then you kind of have to absorb it. Uh, but it's yeah. it's basically just about eliminating all the things that prevent you from writing. And he yeah. he really dives into the notion of resistance and the idea that all all artists are just blocked by resistance. And here's how you fight it. And here's how you basically you know become a pro, so to speak. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's really really yeah. good. It's a good kick in the pants if you're struggling. It's so useful um, to dig into that stuff right now, of course, when we're all at home and, you know, there is the time yeah. to write. So, yeah, I'll cool. check it out. Thanks. Um, so looking at the movie in its finished form, what would you, retrospectively, what would you have invested more in and what would you have invested less? And I don't necessarily mean money. It can be time, resources, energy. But what was, uh, what should you have focused more on and what do you think was a waste of time to have focused or spent so much on? Yeah, um, a really good question. I mean, it's always surprising to you um, as a filmmaker when you have a certain vision of something and you you feel like it's, um, in you know, in some scenes it falls short and other scenes it exceeds them. Uh, and, and also on the cutting room, you know, what you thought was essential and what was so easily kind of fell away. So I would say I've learned a lot. I don't know, I don't know about anything specifically, but um, I've noticed that in writing my new project, it's 
I can see now what I'll eventually cut anyway. Um, so I guess it's just that thing of like, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to make this into a way that's like easily <laughs> digestible for the, the no, listeners. I know what you mean. But uh, let, me, let me think about it. Uh, hmm. I mean, one of the things that um, I was really worried about was the fact that we were over budget on our, um, our sets. So we eventually, in the labyrinth space that we built, we had to cut down, you know, 40% of it about. Uh, And so it started out as a much bigger kind of space that we had to eventually, when we shot it, it felt like it was like two hallways kind of intersecting. Um, But in the end, it, it, you know, we were able to creatively problem solve it and the sets were kind of modular and we were able to like change certain things, like make the ceilings lower, make, you know, mm-hmm. more doors appear um, in a way that it still felt like the same, you know, area, but made the sets feel bigger. So um, I think in the end it, it, it could, because of the way that we shot it, it was, um, it was kind of fine and it shouldn't have caused so much stress, you know, in the, development of it or the yeah. production of it um i don't know if that, that is a clear answer for you but um yeah okay great well um what's next for you yeah i'm i'm doing a a japanese folklore so I'm, I'm writing that at the moment that's cool it's very much in the vein of like a wicker man or rosemary's baby um and you know i guess if relic is about death and mortality then this one's about birth and creation and it's certainly about motherhood and sacrifice um both kind of literal and figurative so oh wow is it based on japanese folklore it's based on it's not a specific story it's just drawing on folklore elements so we are kind of creating our own mythology yes oh yeah interesting yeah so this one deals a lot with death and the next one's going to be about birth it sounds like you got definitely like a trilogy in you (laughs) (laughs) yeah something like that just the just small themes you know (laughs) yeah great yeah well, Natalie, this was really, really awesome. Thank you. Um, any Before we wrap up, any um, parting wisdom for aspiring filmmakers out there? It sounds quite simple, but I would just say the most important thing is just to keep making stuff and doesn't matter how small that is, you know, what kind of scale that's on, um, both to keep honing your craft, but also just to, you know, have have a calling card, have something to show people. Um because yeah, unfortunately, you have to believe in yourself before other people start believing in you. So that's yeah. the easiest way to do what you're capable of. Cool. Great. Well, on that note, thank you again. Thank you. Cheers. All right. Here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Natalie Erica James. Number one, seriously, make shorts. Shorts are a big argument within the filmmaking community, but most directors I've spoken to swear by them as very necessary parts of becoming a filmmaker. Natalie took her short on the festival circuit, and it got her representation, which ultimately enabled her to make a very legitimately budgeted feature debut, because producers knew her style and they knew what she was capable of. Now, this is an unlikely example, but the power of Natalie's short got her an agent, which helped get her producers like Jake Gyllenhaal and the Russo 
Russo brothers. And yes, that's Marvel Avengers Russo brothers. Clearly, there's more to the story than that, and it took years for all of this to come together, but having a rep really helps. So make a short and get a rep. Number two, don't overlook your own mental health. Indie filmmaking can be agony and often involves multiple sleepless nights and endless amounts of stress, all of which is par for the course. However, as Natalie pointed out, as a director, your mental health is of the utmost importance and typically it's one of the most overlooked elements of filmmaking. Natalie states that she would take walks to figure out difficult scenarios and deal with difficult circumstances on set, and she turned to meditation to better equip her cognitive abilities. The better your mental health, the less emotional you You'll be and the better you'll be at being creative and solving problems when you're on set. This is particularly important at the beginning stages of your production because you'll want to be as clear-headed and energetic as possible and save your steam for the end so that you don't burn out prematurely. Yes, many stressful elements of directing are entirely unavoidable, but do what you can to be as rested and mentally healthy as possible on your sets. It's very easy to forget about this in our hustle-bustle culture, but find ways to sneak in naps and take those breaks when you need them. It doesn't make you lazy. It makes you a smart director who knows how to manage their creative and cognitive energy, all of which will ultimately serve your movie. Number three, get personal. Natalie put her own personal story into Relic. However, when you watch the movie, it's easy to project your own experiences and interpretations into it. And that universality is one of the things that makes Relic so powerful. Bottom line, the more you open up, the more your audience will relate to you. Clearly, you're not going to reach everybody. But the deeper you go into your own personal story, the more powerful and effective your movie will be for others. Chances are others have dealt with something similar and your movie will convey to them that they're not alone. This is the true power of this level of personal filmmaking, and horror is the most perfect genre for doing this. The events that occurred in Relic are clearly not what happened to Natalie's family exactly, but they are inspired by it. The movie is no less powerful, though. In fact, the horror element makes these emotions work at an even higher level. Horror is one of the best metaphorical vehicles for exploring and addressing things like trauma and tragedy and topics otherwise difficult to confront. No other genre really lets you do this as safely as horror. So if you have a deeply personal story to tell, the horror genre can really let you run wild and confront real horrors in extreme and healing ways. The entire process can be very healing to the filmmaker, and if it's healing to the filmmaker, it's going to be healing for the audience. This is one of the many reasons why horror is such an important genre. Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show was brought to you by Rue Morgue Magazine. Subscribe to Rue Morgue for award-winning insight into the world and culture of horror. From books, movies, and comics to music, collectibles, and classics. Featuring the latest film, book, comic book, music, game, toy releases, and more delivered to your door. Guillermo del Toro called it the best damn magazine in the genre. Subscribe to Rue Morgue, the horror magazine of the 21st century by visiting www.rue-morgue.com. Morg.com. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with your friends and family on social media. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I am Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And on Twitter at the exact same handle. And uh, why not leave us a kind review while you're at it? Anyway, thank you again for listening. 